Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. Welcome back, students. Good to have you guys back with us. I don't know if you were here uh, last year, but you might know that we've been going through the book of Romans. You might have thought we'd be done with Romans by the time you got back, but we're still working through Romans here, one passage at a time. Beginning chapter 14 today. <clears throat> um, I grew up in a, a, a particular tradition that I'm just going to leave nameless for right now because I left that tradition. I'm Presbyterian now, of course, but... Um, Grew up in a, a church and eventually decided to go to seminary and went to a Presbyterian seminary, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And uh, when I was about halfway through my seminary time, I remember going back to the church that I grew up in. And they had a social gathering of some sort and a meal was served. And I remember sitting down at a table and was eating my meal. And then I saw a lady there who I knew when I was growing up. And she happened to know that I was going to seminary. And so she asked, Bob, she said, I understand you're in seminary now. And I said, yeah, I am actually. And she said, it's not one of our seminaries, is it? I said, no. She said, oh, just turned away from me, just turned her back to me. End of conversation. I couldn't believe it. I was just shocked that because I wasn't going to the seminary of her preference and her choice, that she was going to exclude me from conversation the way she did. What happened there in that situation is that somebody took an issue of lesser importance and elevated it to a prominent place of importance in her own spiritual life and then ended up using that to exclude a brother or sister from her company or from her fellowship. This is what we're going to be talking about here today and what Paul takes up in chapter 14. It's this question of what is often called disputable matters. The question of what do we do about preferences, opinions that we have about Christian living that don't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily occupy a place of primary importance in our lives. Particularly, we're talking here within the church. Now, we, of course, have disagreements and discussions with unbelievers outside of the church, but what Paul is talking about here are the disputable matters within the church. The secondary matters are given primary importance, and the result of that becomes that Christians begin then to look at each other with suspicion and with a kind of a fault-finding tendency Um, looking for heresy under every rock, being overly critical and judgmental of brothers and sisters in Christ because they don't happen to hold the same opinion on secondary matters that they happen to hold. So maybe you've experienced that in your upbringing or in your church experience where you've felt ostracized, excluded on some issue that wasn't of primary importance. So hopefully this message will be helpful to you today, and we'll see what Paul has to say here from chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. So let's read that. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans 14, 
Romans 14, starting with verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, honors it, excuse me, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Lord, would you please, by your Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I have three points, as usual, for you this morning, but it's going to take us a little while to get to our three points. Three points are fairly brief, but there's quite a bit of context setting up that I need to do in order for us to understand this passage. So let me do that by way of kind of continuing our introduction. As we talk about this issue of disputable matters, what what does that mean? I've touched on that a a little bit, but I want you to see this here in verse 1, where Paul says, "'As for the one who is weak in faith,' welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That's the ESV translation. If you have an NIV, it says to quarrel over disputable matters. So again, what Paul has in mind here are issues in the church where the Bible is not necessarily clear. Issues maybe the Bible doesn't address at all, but certainly issues on which there's wide disagreement about what the Scriptures teach on an issue. And so, therefore, the issue takes a level of importance that is secondary to more primary doctrinal beliefs and ethical convictions. And the context here in Romans 4 has to do with two particular issues that we don't really deal with too much, and that's what makes this passage a little bit of a challenge to understand. But let me give you the context, then I'll try to apply it to our current day. So the two issues at stake here in Romans 14 have to do with the eating of meat and the observance of days. So, first of all, the eating of meat. Look at verse 2. Paul says this, When one person leaves, he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So there's the word weak showing up in our text. The weak person eats only vegetables. In other words, he doesn't eat meat. One person who believes he may eat anything, Paul doesn't use the word strong there, but I'm using the word strong because I think that's the idea that Paul has in mind here. One group he calls strong, another group he calls weak. The weak person 
eats only vegetables. So what does Paul have in mind here? Well, in the Roman church, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. So two different traditions and ethnicities, believers in Christ, and there were Jewish Christians there who were used to certain passages in the Old Testament, for instance, in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, which prohibited a believer from eating certain foods, and in particular, certain kinds of meats. And so these Jews who have come to Christ, come into the church, and in their background are these laws that say you can't eat meat. And so their conscience is still bound to that, and they feel like they can't in good conscience eat meat. Now, others in the Roman church are eating meat freely, but that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 2. One person believes he can eat meat, the weak person eats only vegetables. His conscience is still bound. So that's probably referring to um, Jewish converts to Christianity. But there was another group among the so-called weak, and that was Gentile Christians who were aware that there was a common practice of offering meat in pagan temples. And it was an act of worship to offer up meat. And when there was meat left over from these pagan temples, that meat was taken out into the marketplace and it was sold. And some Christians would come through the marketplace and buy that meat and take it home and want to eat it. And some Christians were fine with that, but other Christians said, wait a minute, if you eat that meat offered in a pagan temple, you are guilty of pagan worship. You're guilty of idolatry. Who knows, maybe because that meat was offered up in a pagan temple, it might have gotten contaminated by some kind of evil spirit, and you might be bringing that spirit into your home. Are you sure you want to do that? So that was the concern of the Gentile Christian and the Jewish Christian regarding the eating of meat. And that's what Paul has in mind here in verse 2. But there's another issue, too. There's the issue of the observance of ceremonial days, verse 5. Paul talks about another difference of opinion here in the church. One person esteems one day as better than another, and so I think he's referring to the weak there, while another esteems all days alike. So here's another group of people who aren't uh, bound or don't feel the necessity to obey Old Testament ceremonial regulations about certain days that were set apart as sacred. And so now that Jesus has come and has fulfilled all of the ceremonial laws for the Christian, we see that at least that part of the Old Testament law has been abrogated because Jesus has fulfilled those laws. But in the Roman church, apparently there were still people who felt compelled, felt restrained to continue to obey those Old Testament regulations regarding days. Their conscience wasn't free in that regard. And so they still observe these days. Now, if we look throughout the New Testament, we see that the Bible clearly grants to Christians freedom in these two areas that I just mentioned, the eating of meat and the observance of days. So, for instance, in Mark chapter 7, here's what Jesus says. <clears throat> Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. That includes the meat that was forbidden or prohibited in those Old Testament passages that I mentioned. 
We see another mention of this in 1 Timothy 4, where Paul talks about those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So Paul there is talking about the eating of meat and other things, but that's included in what he's talking about. We're not to reject various forms of meat if we receive it with thanksgiving to God. So it's clear that in Roman church, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, as the early church was getting started, that there was freedom granted to Christians in these areas, and yet there were still Christians who just couldn't get out from under their conscience restricting them from acting in these particular ways. So, with regard to the days, I, I think we also see this here in Colossians 2, where Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Paul is saying there is freedom. No one can judge you and say you're a bad Christian because you're not observing these festivals, these Sabbaths, as they were commanded in the Old Testament. So, that leaves the Roman church in a position where it, there's this kind of division between the weak and the strong. The weak say, my conscience is bound, I can't eat that meat. I've got to observe these days. I've got to be strict. I've got to be rigid about it. The strong, they say, my conscience is clear. I, it's just not a problem for me. So I'm going to eat meat, and I'm going to enjoy it, and I'm not going to observe all those Old Testament ceremonial days, and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. Weak and the strong. So here's how David Swavely's written a really good book on legalism. Describes this. Christians are weak in a particular area, when God allows freedom in that area, they are restricted by their conscience and therefore cannot enjoy that freedom. Now, let me clarify here that I don't think what Paul means, and I don't think Dave Swavely means to suggest that to be weak in this sense is, is, um, is a sin issue. It, you know, to, to be weak in conscience issues is not to be in sin. It's not to be a a bad Christian, um, and we'll talk more about this in, in a little bit, because there are some good reasons for us to be bound by conscience in certain areas. So, <clears throat> Paul is not saying that the strong have a right to look with disrespect or to be condescending or dismissive to the weak. He does mean to say throughout the rest of these verses, and we'll look at this here in just a second, that the weak weak are not in sin unless they want to take those areas where their conscience is bound and seek to impose it on other brothers and sisters in Christ. Where it becomes a problem is when the weak begin to take their personal preferences and opinions on disputable matters and make them issues that are critical to Christian maturity. But they look upon the church and look down upon judging those who don't practice the certain convictions that they do. So, today's message has to do with Paul's exhortation to the weak, the ones whose consciences are bound. I think as we pick up in verse 13 and go through the end of chapter 14 next week, we'll see what Paul has to do or what he has to say to the strong. But today, it's God's word to the weak. Now, let's try to bring this up to 2016, 
because I don't know too many Christians who struggle with this issue of whether they ought to eat meat or not. Uh, I don't know too many Christians who are, whose conscience is bound, they can't get a T-bone steak at Marsh and take it home and, and grill it. They feel like they're sinning against God. I mean, it's just not an issue today. But there are <clears throat> other issues that do play into our conscience and that would fall under the category, category of disputable matters, matters of opinion. So let me go through just a few. Um, th there are many, but certainly drinking of alcohol, I think, would fall into this category. There are some people, some Christians, who, who think, I, you know, drinking alcohol is wrong. My conscience won't let me do it. I cannot condone the drinking of alcohol under any circumstance. And there are others who say, you know, the Bible, it, it doesn't prohibit the drinking of wine or drinking of beer. There is no prohibition in the scriptures against it. In fact, in some places, it kind of affirms it, really. The Bible does condemn drunkenness. It does condemn the abuse of alcohol. It's a sin to get drunk. It is a sin to use alcohol to the point of intoxication. But the Bible doesn't prohibit the drinking of alcohol, and yet we have a number of different opinions on that. There are some of you right now that might be offended that I even said that. The problem is when the weak say, in my personal conviction that I can't drink alcohol, and those who don't share it are clearly not as devout and committed to God as I am. And in fact, I think it's my responsibility to set up rules and regulations to make sure that other Christians don't drink alcohol like me. That's the kind of issue that Paul is talking about here that ends up creating division in church. It's a disputable matter. of different opinions on it. It's not a primary. It's not an issue of primary importance. Drinking alcohol. Music and worship. This isn't quite the issue that it used to be 20 or 30 years ago where there were churches all over the place that were splitting because one group wanted contemporary music and another group wanted traditional music. And generally, it's, I would say, the person of weaker faith in this area who is very narrow and says, worship music needs to be this one particular style. It needs to come from this one particular century. It needs to use only these particular limited instruments. That's an area where that person's conscience is bound, and that's fine if that's your personal conviction, but then again, it gets to be a problem where you start to impose that on other people, particularly because the Bible does not give us specific directions and prescriptions about the style of music that we should use in worship. It's a disputable matter. There's freedom on this. How about dress in worship, the clothes that we wear, the services on Sunday morning? Some who are under the conviction that anything other than a suit and tie for a man and a dress for a woman, anything outside of that is inappropriate for coming to Sunday morning worship. Others say, again, I don't see in the scriptures where there is any specific direction about how I'm supposed to dress when I come to worship God. I think there's freedom there. I think I can exercise my opinion in that area. Others don't agree. Okay, we have a difference of opinion on a disputable matter. A person who thinks there's more freedom might actually point to a passage like in James chapter 2 where James says, you know what, if you've got a well-dressed person who comes into your church and you say, oh, come up here and sit in the place of prominence, but then someone comes in with shabby clothes and you don't pay any attention to them, that's a problem. Almost like in James, 
giving special preference to a person in shabby clothes. <laughs> it's not an encouragement to all of us to dress in shabby clothes next Sunday. That's not the point. The point is that this is a disputable matter. It's an area in which we have difference of opinion. I love it that some people wear suits and ties here, and some people come in shorts. I think that's great. I think it ought to be that way. Exercising our own personal preference and personal conviction in those matters. There's another issue that I hesitate to get into, but I'm going to say it anyway. This year's election. <laughs> As I hear Christians talk about this election coming up, I mean, I've just been surprised at, I don't know if surprise is the word, but there's been such strongly expressed convictions and opinions about the candidates who are before us in this November's election. And there are some, and I've seen the cases made, there are some Christians who say that it's the Christian's duty to vote for Donald Trump because of his views on certain issues. And then I see other groups who just as strongly say it is the Christian's duty to not vote for Donald Trump. And both these groups are passionate, and they have deeply held convictions about that issue. But friends, this is an open matter. The Bible doesn't give us a prescription or a command about who we're supposed to vote for this November. So we should leave it to personal conscience and not exclude and look down upon with contempt those who might not have the same view as you do about Donald Trump. An open matter. Other examples. Millennial views. Is Jesus coming before the millennium, during the millennium, after the millennium? Are we in the millennium? Mode of baptism, sprinkling, pouring, immersion, vegetarianism, the house a Christian should live in, the kind of car a Christian should drive, public schools versus homeschooling. These are disputable matters. We have different opinions and different preferences and should leave people to their conscience in developing their convictions in these things. So I'm still an introduction here, okay? <laughs> I, we're finally getting to our three points, but, but they're brief. So, given that introduction, what does Paul then say to the weak? So, look how he sets this up in verse, in verse uh, 3. He, he seems to realize that this kind of tension is going on in the church. Let not the one who eats, that's the strong person, despise the one who abstains, the one whose conscience is bound and can't eat meat. And let not the one who abstains the one who can't eat meat, pass judgment on the one who eats. So th that's kind of the launching pad for these next three points. Uh, again, next week, we're going to talk about the first part of verse 3, direction to the one who eats, the direction to the strong, and I think that's what Paul talks about through the remainder of chapter 14. But right now, the end of verse 3 there, let not the one who, abs um, who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So here's, here's Paul's direction to the weak. Three things, and, and I've just read it to you. The first point is to the weak, to the person whose conscience is bound on particular secondary issues, don't be judgmental about it. That, that's Paul's very direct command. Uh, he goes on in verse 4 and 5. Who are you, one who abstains? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The idea there is that, you know, 
obeying certain regulations and rules isn't what's going to make you stand before God anyway. It's the Lord who makes you stand. It's the righteousness of Christ that makes you stand. It's the shed blood of Jesus that makes you stand, not your rule following. Paul also says, using the analogy of a master, he says, who are you to expect others to respond to you as if you're their master? A master doesn't do that. A master doesn't insert himself a person doesn't insert himself into the master's affairs as he gives orders to his servant because he knows that servant isn't responsible to him. The servant is responsible to his own master. And so that's the example Paul gives. But the biggest reason that Paul says we shouldn't judge one another is the very end of verse 3. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. We're talking about the church. We're talking about brothers and sisters in the church. And what Paul says is, even though you might have a disagreement with a person on this issue, God has welcomed that person. God has accepted that person by grace alone. That person is a Christian. Who are you to exclude a person whom God has welcomed? That's his, that's his logic. That's his reasoning. How, how can you do that? How can you exercise a stricter judgment on others than God does? How can you exclude the one that God has accepted? So John Stott puts it up really well here as we think about this. The best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. It is safe to treat others as we would like them to treat us. We all know that, the golden rule. Treat others as you would have them treat you. Stott goes on, it's better, it's safer still. Treat them as God does. Just treat them as you want to be treated. Treat them as God does. And what Paul says here is that God has welcomed them, so you should welcome them too. And refrain from judgment. Secondary matters. Keep, keep this context in mind. We're talking about secondary matters on which there's a difference of opinion. Disputable matters. Second thing, think it through. Okay, again, to, to the weak, to the person whose conscience is bound and is kind of responsible to certain regulations, who doesn't have freedom in certain areas that other Christians do, Paul says, think it through. The end of verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In whatever position that you end up taking on a disputable matter, make sure you're fully convinced in your own mind. Make sure that you've done your homework. Make sure that you've looked at the scriptures and considered all of the relevant texts. Make sure that you have prayed about it and asked God to give you wisdom. Make sure that you have consulted the definitive book on the topic, whatever it might be. Make sure that you've sought counsel from trusted Christians in your life, elders, pastors, friends, who can help you think through the situation. As one person said, what you need to do is educate your conscience. If your conscience is holding you back from certain things, take steps to educate it. Two possibilities might come from this. One, you look into the issue and you might find, I was wrong. That's possible. Could be wrong. Maybe you find that this view on some disputable matter isn't a view, an opinion you've had all your life. And then you realize, you know, the only reason really I've ever held that opinion is because read it in a book somewhere, or because I heard it in my church growing up, but I never really looked at the Bible to see if it was actually true, you might find that you can be corrected on this situation. But you also might find, after you 
seek to fully convince your own mind and you investigate and do your homework, you might find, you know what? I was right. I do find the scriptures do say or do prohibit this particular action or this particular belief. So I need to maintain that conviction. Or you might find, you know what? I don't know that the Bible speaks real clearly on this issue, but it's just not good for me to be able to exercise freedom in this particular area. For my own conscience, for my own personal walk, for the, for the health of my own soul, I just can't allow myself to do that. And that's perfectly fine. That's why I don't think Paul is saying that the weak are necessarily to be dismissed or, or looked upon negatively because some of us have consciences that have bound us to certain behaviors for a good reason. You know, a perfect example would be the person who struggles with alcohol, the, the alcoholic who says, you know what, I just can't go into a bar. I can't step foot into a, a, even a sports bar. I can't go in there. If that's your conviction, then God bless you for that conviction. You feel that it's not good for you to go into a bar, don't go into a bar. And the strong, those that have the freedom to go into the bar, shouldn't look down upon you for that. But that's your conviction. I can't go into a bar. I can't drink. I I can't do these things that others do. What, What you can say is this. This is my personal conviction. I respect those who disagree with me on this because it's a disputable matter. It's a secondary issue. I mean, notice what Paul says here in verse 5. He says everybody should be convinced in his own mind. It doesn't say everybody should develop a position and then impose it upon other people's minds. Conviction in my mind, in your, in your own personal conviction, um, do your homework to figure it out. Think it through. Last thing, remember the last day. I, I don't have time to get into some of these, these verses here in the middle, so we're going to go to verses 10 to 12. Paul says, remember the last day. That is, to the person who is hypercritical, to the fault finder, to the, the freedom crusher, the self-appointed prosecuting attorney in the church who feels that it's his or her responsibility to keep everybody in order. Paul says here at the end, how, how can you be demanding an account from others when God is one day demand an account from you. Verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Repeats it again. Oh you, why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So Paul uses the final judgment day as a way, as a foundation on which to exhort us to be very slow in the way we judge others, disputable matters. Now, let me be, clarify here, Paul's not saying that you should never rebuke somebody. He's not saying you should never confront somebody. He's not saying you should never challenge a brother or sister in Christ. If you have a brother or sister in Christ who's engaged in sexual immorality or who's lying habitually or never going to church or whatever the moral issue might be, the Bible would say in many places that it is your responsibility to confront, to challenge, to rebuke your brother and sister. So you might say, what are you talking about? That's completely contradictory to everything you've been saying, everything Paul's been saying. No, because on those issues I just mentioned, they're not disputable matters. Those are issues where the scriptures are clear. So on non-disputable matters, we have this freedom, this 
encouragement to hold one another accountable. But in disputable matters, there ought to be a slowness and a reluctance, particularly as we look to the last day. So there's something I think is important for us to, to keep in mind here. We must not elevate disputable matters, opinions, as if they are fundamental, and we must not reduce fundamental matters as if they are disputable. You know, there's a lot packed into that, and there, there's a lot to discuss there. But I don't want you to give the opinion that, or the impression that what Paul is saying here is that you can just allow everybody to do whatever they want. It's just a moral free-for-all because we're never supposed to judge one another. No, there's a distinction between disputable and indisputable matters. You say, what, how do we know the difference? It's a good question, and that takes some time to think through. But here's one way we can look at it. it one, one place where we get a list of non-disputable, non-negotiable, foundational, essential points is in the Nicene Creed. We recited just a little while ago. That's why we do that every month here. The way of reminding us of the foundation. I might just sum it up like this. And in fact, in verse 9, Paul, Paul kind of gets to it. To this end, Christ died and rose again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. That's a non-disputable matter there. The essentials are that there's a God, and God has created the world and you are his creature, and you are accountable to him and responsible to him, and you have neglected him and refused him and disobeyed him. And because of your sin, you've been estranged from him, but God in his mercy and grace has sent a Savior for you, and Jesus Christ. God took on flesh in Jesus, came, born in a stable, lived a perfect life, obedient to his Father, went to the cross, shed his blood, died a real death there, that paid the penalty for sins, that purchased pardon for those who have faith in him. He was raised from the dead bodily, out of the grave. He lives now. He reigns over the universe. He gives instruction now to his people through his word, the Bible, in which we learn about the gospel and all of its implications. And he calls on everyone to bow the knee to Jesus and believe in him to receive him as Savior so that your sins can be forgiven and you can be saved, adopted into his family, have a place in his church filled with his Holy Spirit and the promise of eternal life. And now we look and we long for Jesus to come again. And when he does, he's going to take his people to himself, to an eternal heaven on the new heavens and the new earth. And those outside of Christ will perish in everlasting torment. Those are the essentials. Very quickly. And there's more that we can add to that. But those are the things where we don't divert. We don't negotiate. We hold with firm faith. And until Jesus comes again, he has commanded us also to observe the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, to come and feed on his body and blood. And that's what we're going to do now. So, Ben, if you want to come up, we'll sing a couple verses of Church's One Foundation and come to the table. Father, we praise you because your word is so rich. There's so much wisdom in it. And Father, we confess our weakness and sometimes the difficulty that we have in, in really understanding what your word means to us. So help us to apply this passage well in the power of your spirit and um, bring about unity in your church as we love each other, Jesus, as you have loved us. In your name we pray.